Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 21 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kimbu Bumani, and I'm back this week with a guest. Prior to last week, I was back doing the solo dough thing with the pod as I tried to, well, did very well in talking about the prior basketball landscape in the NBA playoffs. This week, I have a guest who is a content creator for the Sports World Debates. His name is Pranav Sriraman, and he covers NFL, NBA, and MLB topics on IG. Has over 2K followers, and he's been going in-depth on the basketball landscape today and the weeks leading up to this during the NBA postseason. Uh, Pranav, happy to have you on. Let's talk about your product and what has surprised you or amazed you so far during this NBA postseason run. Yeah, for sure. So um, I write articles and create content for the Right Way Sports Network. And I also create content not only on Instagram, but on TikTok and Twitter as well. And these playoffs, um, although they've been um, they've been filled with injuries all throughout both conferences, I think it's really been exciting, especially having the fans back has added an element to the game that we missed during the 2020 playoffs and just the unexpectedness of it. We see teams like the Lakers and the Nets, both prohibitive favorites prior to the year, getting knocked out prior to the conference finals. Although injuries did play a major part in that, I thought that was interesting to see um, throughout these playoffs. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, having the fan element back into postseason picture is amazing and has played a very influential part in a variety of series. And we saw that in itself manifest when the Phoenix Suns played the Los Angeles Clippers in game one of the Western Conference Finals. And that's where we're going to kind of delve into in the early segment of this podcast. The game has just ended really a few minutes ago, and the Suns were able to pull away with a huge statement victory of the, for the Clip, against the Clippers in game one of the Western Conference Finals. And this was a game that meant a lot to the Suns in terms of how are they going to be talent-wise on the meter spectrum without Chris Paul leading the charge. He didn't play, so Cameron Payne got the start. He played particularly solid with 11 points and nine assists, leading that one-guard spot. But it was the amazing play of Devin Booker. He had 40 points, um, 12 assists, 13 rebounds, basically had his first career triple-double in his most important game of his career to date. Talk about the backcourt productivity that the Phoenix Suns were able to have and have it be so where they were able to control the pace and flow of the game without having their floor general leading the charge in game one. Yeah, I think Devin Booker, obviously, he stepped up in a major way, taking more on-ball responsibilities than ever before. We know that Devin Booker, when he's with Chris Paul, takes a lot of the off-ball responsibilities, constantly moving without the ball, getting to his spots. But today, with Cameron Payne in the lineup as well, he took a lot of on-ball responsibility. And major shout-out to Cameron Payne as well. I thought Cameron Payne did an excellent job filling in for Chris Paul in the starting lineup, um, making timely shots, conducting the offense really well. Um, I think the guard play, particularly with Devin Booker, was really good today. But the main part of the Phoenix Suns offense, which I was particularly impressed with today, was the play of their wings. Jay Crowder and Mikal Bridges were both phenomenal today on both ends of the ball, putting pressure on Paul George, Reggie Jackson, all the Clippers shooters in the perimeter. And then offensively, they were constantly hitting their three-point shots, um, scoring when the ball was passed to them, um, creating for themselves. I think the Wings did a really good job stepping up in Chris Paul's absence today, more so than the guards. Right, great statement you made. Um, Phoenix, as a team, hit 13 three-pointers. Mikel Bridges had 14 points, including a variety of flurries late in the fourth quarter. His transition exchange between him and Booker on the lob execution ultimately, in my opinion, submitted the state of that game and now propelled him to that game one victory. Um, DeAndre Ayton 
was also fabulous, 20 points and nine rebounds. And in a playoff type atmosphere that was important, I think, for the viewers who recognized the talent that Phoenix had, we all knew that for this team to take the next step and live up to their number two seed billing, their front court piece, who was a former number one overall pick, had to play up to his draft lottery billing. And he has played very well against Anthony Davis, did more than serviceable against the MVP, Nikola Jokic. And today, when the Clippers rolled out their small lineup once again, he dominated against it, whether he was going against Batoon at the five, Zubach, who I thought presented more of a favorable matchup in the Clippers' favor. And then when DeMarcus Cousins out there, he played particularly well. How important has his run in the postseason as an individual helped propel his stock moving forward, but also helped cement Phoenix's um, competition or legitimacy towards competing for an NBA championship? DeAndre Ayton has been the X factor. We all expected him to be and so much more. This is a contract year for him this summer. He is heading into a contract year. His um, the first part of his rookie extension is coming up. And I think this playoffs, he has propelled himself to earn that max level contract. Um, like the other top picks in his draft, dude, the, the draft has deserved as well. Um, his rim protection has been key. When you talk about the Lakers series, him guarding Anthony Davis one-on-one and shutting down their entire offense at the rim. And then in the Denver series, prior to the Denver series, Nikola Jokic just constantly struggled against DeAndre Ayton. And once again, DeAndre Ayton did a great job on Nikola Jokic. You're obviously not going to contain such a great offensive force like that. But I think based on how good Nikola Jokic is, DeAndre Ayton did a really good job on him. And the biggest part of the series, the Clippers Sun series coming into it was we saw how much Rudy Gobert struggled against the Los Angeles Clippers facing their five out system. And many people had the same concerns with DeAndre Ayton. How was he going to adjust to playing a five out system where they don't put much pressure at the rim? Instead, he's forced to come out. And today we saw that unlike Gobert, DeAndre Ayton was a lot more mobile coming onto the perimeter, contesting shots on the perimeter. And unlike Gobert as well, he's much more productive on the offensive end. So I think on both ends of the ball, whether that's being incredibly efficient on offense and then being the anchor of the Suns defense, I think he's been exceptional. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing you stated was offensive productivity that Ayton has that Gobert doesn't. I think a lot of that coincides with guard play, willing to play make towards his ability when he rim runs to the basket. And so two things you can do to help, I think, limit a team like the Clippers small ball lineup. Obviously, you have a big that's willing to contest three-point shooting in the corners. And you also have to be able to make them pay for being small in offensive setups, pick and roll action, or just a variety of post-ups when you feel like on a pin-down type scenario, he's open or had or is fronting the smaller man at a profitable manner to where he can execute and get points. And so that's what Aiden's been able to do. And I think that's going to really help I think take LA small ball lineup off the floor more often than not, which is why we saw a more prominent rotation of bigs for the Clippers that we didn't see the last series. Cousins got substantial minutes. Zubox got even more substantial minutes. I'm going to expect those two guys to be focal points in the rotation moving forward against Phoenix. Now for the Clippers, they hit 23 point shots. They're the number one three pointing team in the league, but outside of Paul George's 34 and Reggie Jackson's 20, DeMarcus Cousins was the only other guy that scored in double figures. How important is it that this team continues to have a variety of contributions from the scoring aspect from other guys and not just have George and Jackson continue to just ride their coattails of hot shooting, which has been very successful early on in the postseason. But, you know, when it comes to jump shooting in the playoffs, that doesn't always last from game to game. 
It's huge. It's huge, especially when Kawhi Leonard's out. Not having having proper contributions from the entire supporting cast is huge. We saw Terrence Mann drop 39 in the closeout game against the Utah Jazz. Obviously, you're not going to expect that same level of productivity moving forward, but at least you need more than what you received today. Um, I thought Batum did a solid job today, but you need um, contributions all throughout the board um, for the Clippers standpoint. Um, just didn't think they did that. I thought they forced a lot of three-point shots instead of putting pressure at the rim when they could have put pressure at the rim, um, especially in that last two-minute drill where um, they took a lot of jump shots instead of attacking the rim. I saw wide open lanes. Paul George in transition pulled up for a three when there was a lane to attack the basket. Just decisions like that, not attacking the rim at will and relying too much on the jump shot, um, too much on the three-point shot, as much as it could be beneficial at times, it can also really kill um, a playoff playoff team's chances of going far. I agree. There were times where I think when the Clippers, they had that three-point flurry and it went up by six, 74, 68. I think from then on, there were multiple uh, situations where George or Jackson kind of went one on five, some half-court situations and jacked up some ill-advised contested threes late in the shot clock. I feel like for this team to beat this Phoenix Suns unit that's so disciplined defensively and explosive offensively, every possession on the offensive end for the LA Clippers matters. You have to take the best opportunistic shot possible and not just feel like well we have two dynamic on-ball scorers in Jackson and George we could just get away with going one-on-one maybe you can do that when Kawhi Leonard's in the picture he's not so in essence you have one all-star caliber scorer and a lot of guys that are solid complimentary pieces that need quality looks to be even more effective than what they already are and so that's going to be important for the Clippers moving forward but as moving to game two um, we're going to expect possibly Chris Paul to not play again um, what do the Clippers you feel like have to do to steal a game in Phoenix before the series heads back to Los Angeles? Well, obviously getting contributions from their role players is huge. I mean, you can all, you can only rely on Paul George and Reggie Jackson so much. Um, but in terms of what the Clippers have to do as an offensive unit, I think the Clippers have to attack the rim. In game six, they challenged probably the best rim protector of our era in Rudy Gobert. Um, they can, they constantly challenged him at the rim, making him have to help constantly, which allowed them to free up shooters in the corner. Tonight, I'm not sure they really went to that strategy as much as they could have. Um, I think in um, in game two, when they, fl- fa- when they face off against the Phoenix Suns, obviously – um, they have to constantly attack the rim, make DeAndre Ayton come on the help, which would free up a corner shooter. Or like last game against Reggie Jackson and Terrence Mann, Barrett, the rim. And not necessarily did they just pass out. They also finished with him with physicality. I think attacking the rim has to be a huge key because jump shots can only take you so far. I agree. And moving on to really with the Suns, how the Suns got here. They were able to beat the Denver Nuggets in the semifinals, sweeping them in four. And their production from that series was phenomenal from their backcourt. Chris Paul set the tone and also submitted their victorious you know, winning ways in that series with a dominant performance in game four where he had 37. Booker had 32-34, I imagine. Um, but pivoting from the Suns, since they are where they are, we just discussed them. Denver, their season was kind of a season of up and downness. They started off pretty slow. Jamal Murray gets hurt but before he gets hurt the Nuggets picked up their play even better to the point where teams were like or the fan viewers were like wow this is the team we expected this to be all year they look like legitimate Western Conference contenders their point guard gets hurt 
and they're still able to be heading to the playoffs on a momentous high. And for lack of a better term, when they matched up with the Portland Trailblazers on paper, Portland had the better team. But since Denver had a lot more cohesion offensively and were just a little bit better than Portland defensively, they're able to get the six-game series. Their deficiencies manifested against a better team in Phoenix. Moving forward with this Nuggets squad, are they set up to where they are right now, to where if Murray comes back into the full relatively healthy, that's enough to compete in the West? Or do you feel like that team moving forward probably needs to make some roster changes or maybe even a coaching change if Mike Malone doesn't work out long-term as the leader of the hell? Um, I think they need to make some significant roster changes if they want to compete out West. Obviously, getting Jamal Murray back is going to be huge. I mean, their offense will probably be one of the best in the league like we expect. Even without Jamal Murray, they're one of the best offenses. But defensively is where their problems lie. And although Nikola Jokic is great, he's probably he's the best offensive big man in the NBA. He's also one of the worst defensive big men in the NBA and constantly gets attacked on ball screens and switches. And I think not having a great help defender next to him is really going to be um, a killer for the Nuggets if they don't get if they don't address that problem in the offseason. Aaron Gordon is serviceable, but I don't think he's really of the caliber of an elite help defender, an elite switcher to make up for Jokic's defensive deficiencies. I think in the offseason, whether that's through the draft or that's whether um, that's attacking the problem through free agency. Denver really needs to prioritize getting a, a dominant defensive four next to Nikola Jokic. And then the other thing with the Denver Nuggets, which is really going to propel their future success, is the development of Michael Porter Jr. We really saw Michael Porter Jr. come along this year as a scorer, um, as a shooter especially. He's one of the best shooters in the NBA but oftentimes he gets too trigger happy with the shots, I believe. And he gets a lot of tunnel vision and just chucks up shots um, without really scanning the floor and seeing what best possible play he can make. And I think the development as a playmaker for Michael Porter Jr., along with being a defender, has to come along this offseason. Um, he really needs to progress in both those departments because when his scoring is not going on, he's pretty much a liability on the court. Yeah, I agree on both sentiments. I think the defensive aspect of it is important do you need somebody alongside Jokic that presents some type of help side interior defensive capabilities because we know Jokic is a liability there mainly because he's not the most athletic and he's not a vertical leaper he really can't jump and on the perimeter side everybody talked constantly and it rang true against the Suns they missed Jerry and Grant Jeremy Grant they missed him they missed his ability to be able to defend on the perimeter provide some type of two-way scoring ability and it's not their fault that he decided to Take the same contract for Detroit for an enhanced role, but they missed him nonetheless. And Porter Jr. has great of a talent. He is offensively. doesn't give you that um, duality from the defensive side on the perimeter. So I think those are two things that they need to look for in the draft or in free agency, I might add. And maybe it wouldn't even hurt, I think, in some aspect to add a little bit of a scoring punch off the bench too. I think they have a surplus of guards. Um, I, you know, Composa was solid as a backup point. Will Barton. Finally, when he got back into the full showcase that he's still a high octane scorer off the bench as a six man, but more scoring punch off the bench to where it can allow Murray and Jokic to get rest. So they won't have so much wear and tear on their body being the focal points of the starting unit and the second unit will help a lot. And this is my personal opinion of it all. I do think Mike Malone next year is going to be the year that's going to decide if he's the guy long term, because the Nuggets are in this weird spot that Golden State once was in under Mark Jackson. The Milwaukee Bucks are currently in under Mike Budenholzer. The talent is there, 
but maybe a new voice, a new message, a new philosophy that's going to help the current unit right now take that next level since the current staff there message just kind of went one ear and out the other and it's outstayed its welcome in a more outdated era of basketball, my personal opinion. So would you, oh, you can go. No, go ahead, go ahead. So the Utah series with the Clippers, Utah, they're done, they're out. They went up 2-0 against the Clippers and we all expected, even when LA tied it up 2-2, when Kawhi went out with the injury, we all thought this was Utah series to win. And they had this hot shooting streak in game five where they made 18 threes, 17 threes, I think, in the first half. But they were only up five. And then the second half, that shooting touch diminished. And then they lost in game five in Utah. Game six, huge scoring punch from Mitchell and Clarkson. Had this huge lead in the third where they go up by 24-plus. Those guys cool off. They kind of fall down the wayside. And then they lose to the Clippers in six. This is a team that blew a 3-1 lead in the bubble and blew a 2-0 lead to a Clipper squad that didn't have his best player. And when the chips were where they were, and they were the most healthiest team in comparison to L.A., they still folded. Donovan Mitchell's a stud. Can he look around at the setting that's currently aside him in Utah and feel like they're building something forward to where his talents can be maximized toward Western Conference contention? Or does this team face potentially being have to be remade in the next two years because they're an old, aging team that may be a little bit outdated in a rising Western Conference where young talent's coming into the door at a rapid rate? It's hard. The Utah Jazz are the team I have the most mixed feelings about. And it's because on paper, um, even as even as a cohesive unit, they look so good. They look so good. They have a dominant rim protector. They have great defenders on the wing. Um, they also have a great offense, probably the, um, one of the best shooting teams in the NBA. But then when it comes to actual execution, time and time again, they haven't gotten the job done when it's been a favorable circumstance presented to them. And I think a lot of that goes into that. Obviously, when you have Rudy Gobert facing a five-out system, he's his rim protection is not going to have as great of an impact as it would against a system that's not five-out. But at the same time, I feel like the Jazz also have pretty weak guard defenders. At least last game, their guard defenders didn't play too great, and which is why I'm not going to put full blame on Rudy Gobert is because because of the Jazz guard defenders playing so poorly in that game, Rudy Gobert was forced to help so frequently, which allowed shooters in the corner to get open. And he really had to decide whether he had to stay in the paint or allow that open shot. And he would probably allow that open shot instead of an open path to the rim. So I think that um, improving their defensive perimeter game has to be a major um, point of emphasis in the offseason. But there's really no reason why the Jazz should have lost that series. It honestly comes down to execution. Um, They had a 25-point lead going into the third quarter. It's just the lack of offensive output combined with their poor defensive play really cost them. But on paper, and their execution all season long um, gave me full confidence that they should have come through this playoffs, but they for some reason just didn't. Okay, so I have a few questions to you about Utah. They kind of have specific importance from a thematic principle with all of them. The first one is Mitchell. He's a great talent, but it was pretty clear when Conley wasn't in the line of the first five games and he was a primarily ball handler and decision maker. He struggled to assist in helping make other baskets more easier for his teammates, especially in pick and roll action with Gobert, which I thought was influential in 
having the Clippers feel entitled enough to keep a small ball lineup in there because they knew they weren't going to be abused with it being in there on the defensive end with Utah's length offensively. Can you say or agree that Mitchell probably needs to improve as a playmaking guard? Same thing Booker's had to improve on throughout his career to help not only make his game better, but to make his teammates around him better as well as being complementary pieces that coincide within his great scoring ability. Yeah, I think Mitchell's actually taken a big step in terms of playmaking from his first year. Obviously, when we saw him in his first year, his second year, he had a lot of tunnel vision going on. But um, over time, he's become one of the better passers in the NBA, I believe. But just making the right decisions um, at times can be a really big problem for Donovan Mitchell. Um, I also think not having Mike Conley put such a big offensive load on Donovan Mitchell that he maybe have uh, and also playing on a bad ankle. Maybe he rushed his decisions more than he had to. Uh, but this offseason, I'm not really sure if the Jazz want to hold on to Conley as that secondary playmaking piece. Maybe they explore a trade. I know I saw something proposed the other day, maybe a mock trade, but maybe they could propose a trade to Boston, maybe for a Marcus Smart who could come into the lineup. And that's an off-ball guard who can also pass really well. Um, I think both teams would benefit from a possible trade like that. I'm not sure Mike Conley um, – I think Donovan Mitchell, obviously, he has such a big offensive load, but maybe he doesn't need to shed so much of the load to Mike Conley as he typically does. Um, having a guy who could uh, produce both on and off the ball next to him while being a better defender right next to him could be bigger than what Mike Conley provides for the Utah Jazz. Another question is Utah. They, in my opinion, created their team kind of similar to those Mike D'Antoni Rockets teams that they continuously befell to in the playoffs early on back-to-back years when D'Antoni was still there. And what I mean by that is Gobert was their capella defensively and their rent runner, their lobber and half-court sets or in transition. Um, they would have a point guard. Conley was their Chris Paul that would help Donovan, who was their Mitchell, play off the ball. He'd be the primary ball handler. But overall, they were a team that played outside in. They would drive and kick high usage when it comes to jacking up three-point shots when they went in they were unbeatable when they didn't go in they were very beatable but it worked out for them throughout the year it got them to the number one seed in the west they basically played not how they used to play when Gordon Hayward was there or even when those early years when Gordon Hayward left where they probably took 10 to 12 threes a game but for the most part they were more of a mid-range two-point shooting team that set the tone defensively Snyder was able to establish that three-point barrage offensive system this year and it got them a high seed, it got them to the semifinals, but it also bounced them. Do you feel like it's a philosophy that they can continue and just need a little bit of tinkerage in terms of maybe somebody replacing Conley that incorporates Gobert as an interior big within their offense, or maybe they need to go back to their old Utah roots, which is more of a two-point type of opportunistic offense, mastering the mid-range, and then kind of creating their offensive productivity from there? I think they just need to tinker their current system a little bit. Um, obviously, I, I'm not a huge fan of the mid-range shot. I think if you have the opportunity to get better looks, both at the rim and from the three-point line, then you take that. 
Um, but I think that um, they need to improve how much they attack the rim a lot more, incorporate Gobert in the offense a lot more. And that has to do with a lot of Gobert's offensive development because throughout the year, we saw that Gobert was one of the better screen setters, really good in pick and roll, um, a really good rim runner. But in these playoffs, especially in the Clippers series, his offensive productivity really fell. And I think that really hurt the Jazz, having such a um, useless piece offensively um, within their lineup. And I think he needs to take that next step as an offensive player uh, because he's already so great defensively. If he can add that to his game, I think that can really unlock new pieces to the Utah Jazz offense. Um, but I don't think the Jazz need to fix too much. Obviously, um, when you have a huge three-point shooting system, um, you're going to get a lot of results, but you're also going to have those games where you're not going to get those results. And I thought the Jazz did get those results until they went ice cold in the second half. So just a little bit of tinkering to that system, probably more of an emphasis on attacking the rim, um, more often than just shooting plain threes. Um, I think that can really help them move forward. But I don't think they should stray away too much from what they're doing right now because it obviously brought them success in the regular season and won them around. I agree. And with Gobert, I feel like he's already stated really early on in his career that jokingly, but I feel like within the joke, there's some truth to it. Mitchell isn't a guy that passes the ball a ton to him. And he's felt a type of way about that plenty of times, but I do feel like some of that has to do with Utah's probably lack of trust in his offensive development. And so while I feel like more opportunities to him could help open up the offense even more. He can improve more as a catcher of the basketball or of a finisher as a basketball player. And also Having a couple of moves on the block, you don't have to be Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic with it, but something to where if you get it in the post against a mismatch, you can abuse that mismatch enough with the fundamentals to be successful. And from a defensive standpoint with Gobert, he's a great rim protector, but I look at him as an archaic big at times where he is our quote unquote Dikembe Mutombo of our basketball era. There are times when guys play five out when there's five shooters on the floor, he can be compromised. You stated it's not all on him in large part because the perimeter defenders for the Utah Jazz aren't up to par. What can Utah do to help Gobert out in the future to where when they do play a team that has a variety of shooters on the floor, he isn't the only one that's on an island that has to make up for the deficiencies of his backcourt mates who aren't the greatest perimeter defenders in their own right? It's really tough. It's really tough because obviously you could give a basic answer, like improve the backward defense, but that's easier said than done. I think um, it's, it's a really complicated answer, but I think Utah needs to run more small ball lineups. Um, if Gobert is constantly getting compromised defensively, then Quinn Snyder, I, I think he was quite stubborn in game six, not removing Gobert when he had to, but I think the Utah jazz, um, in the offseason, I don't think the main reason I think he didn't remove Gobert is because they don't really have an alternative big man who's really mobile like that. Derek Favors is their secondary big man, and he's not quite mobile um, when it comes to perimeter defense and in the rim. So I think if they get in the offseason, if they can get a guy who is more mobile defensively as an alternative, Gobert is obviously going to play a major part defensively, obviously. But in times where his deficiencies are exposed, if you get a mobile big or a mobile four who could spell for Gobert and really run that small ball lineup, I think that can be huge. Obviously, in the draft, they didn't do that. They drafted a more traditional big man in Udoka Azubuke. Um, which I didn't really understand that decision because he didn't play that much either. But um, 
in this draft or in this free agency, maybe get a mobile defensive four who at times can spell for Gobert when he really needs it. I agree as well, because I think that's the answer for them. And I don't think they want to go super small because they don't have the personnel to go small. Their personnel to go small is Derek Favors. And then when he's not there, I guess, Niang could be your five, but he's not the most mobile either, right. although he's undersized. So they're in a predicament there. So I just feel like depth that caters to a smaller ball your lineup designed for future smaller ball teams out West is probably the move to go for them moving forward for the Utah Jazz. Now, with the Brooklyn and Milwaukee series that came to a sensational end that has the Bucks moving on, and this is a Bucks team who we kind of all thought once Kyrie went out the injury and James Harden came back, but it was clear when Harden came back, he wasn't 100%. Milwaukee would dust up the Brooklyn Nets in rapid ease, and it took even longer to their comfort. But a few things that we were able to see is that Giannis Antetokounmpo throughout this postseason has made it his mission to be as closer to the basket as possible to maximize his offensive productivity. He scored 40 points in probably one of the more productive postseason series in his young career. He was phenomenal throughout, with the exception of game two. But it was the production of Chris Middleton, Tommy Bucket, a go-ahead bucket, and then Drew Holiday, who had that huge scoring flurry in the fourth quarter and helped push the game to overtime. That was inspirational. Let's focus on Giannis first. How important was it for himself and really for his teammates and when it came to performing at a high level against a contemporary in Kevin Durant, who's a made man, a future Hall of Famer, how important was it for him to have his playing level be so much on par that it kind of canceled both productivities on both ends out to where it allowed his co-stars to be able to do what they need to do to propel the Bucks to a second round victory? It was huge. It was huge. I think coming into this playoffs, um, the questions about Giannis was that his time was running out. We saw in the Toronto series, um, he failed to show up. I mean, he he played well, but he his deficiencies were really um, shown on the spotlight, especially offensively when they when teams can wall against him. And then we saw last year um, with the Miami Heat, they executed the same defensive game plan, walling up against Giannis, making the shooters beat them, and the shooters couldn't beat them. And this year, it was really going to be, well, will Giannis take that next offensive step? And although I'm not really quite sure uh, if I'll say he's taking that next step as a scorer, I will give him credit in terms of this regard. He's not taking as many three-point shots as he once did. Earlier in the series, he did. But compared to last year, compared to two years prior, he is constantly attacking the rim. If he doesn't find an open shot at the rim, he's passing out to open shooters. And his passing has been the biggest improvement of his offensive game. Um, he's made tremendous passes, whether that's in the pick and roll, um, whether that's kicking out to open shooters or creating based off how much defensive attention he draws inside. I think his passing has really come on a long way and it's really helped the Bucks offense be a lot less stagnant than it was before. It's still stagnated at some points throughout the series, but it happens a lot less frequency due to Giannis's passing development. Um, but in terms of what my overall takeaways from the series are is obviously if the 
Brooklyn Nets were fully healthy, I would still pick them to win. But based off my reaction for what Milwaukee did, I think what Giannis did in this series is huge for um, his overall rankings among the league because people didn't really take him that seriously as a playoff performer. And I think showing up big, showing up, like you said, against a contemporary like Kevin Durant, um, matching his productivity both on the offensive side of the ball and then being excellent defensively as a help defender, I think that was huge for the Milwaukee Bucks and huge for Giannis as well. Yeah, he had a great game, 40 points. But the most important thing for Giannis, he was 8 of 14 at the free throw line. Now, 8 of 14 is not great, but made more than half of his free throws. And that was a big thing in this series because in the last series against the Miami Heat, he struggled at the line, but the team was so dominant, it didn't really come back to bite him in the butt. It was really coming back to haunt them against Brooklyn because Brooklyn was matching them blow for blow, even with all the injuries. And so I think the biggest thing for Giannis and for the Bucs, I think they realized that you're right. We both can agree. His offensive game still has ways to go but they're playing him more like a traditional big than a point small forward. And I think when they played him like a point small forward in the past, it allowed teams to create the wall concept because he was coming with the basketball as the primary ball handler downhill. You could just wall off the paint and he wasn't as productive of a playmaker on a driving kick standpoint. And he didn't have the mid range or the three point shot to where when they formed a wall, he could just come into the shot with confidence and knock it down. So now He's getting the ball five inches towards the basket at the elbow on the block where he's posting up against a Jeff Green, against a Blake Griffin. And he's strong enough and physical enough to make them feel his body. And he's able to go into it and take hook shots and on pick and roll action with Chris Middleton, which I thought they didn't run enough because if they ran it enough, they could have made their offense a whole lot easier when they did. He was affected there on slip and dive situations. And so for him moving forward and for the Bucks, is it? for their benefit for Giannis to kind of be their KG Dwight Howard type player instead of trying to make him into a LeBron James as point small four type player on the perimeter. Yeah, I think um, I think the biggest thing is Giannis has to play more at the five, especially when you're running lineups and your five is Brooke Lopez, who dropped so much. They're lucky it didn't hurt them against the Nets. Well, it did, but they're lucky that they advanced past Brooklyn. Uh, but when Brooke Lopez drops as much as he does, that allows guys like Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, all those Nets shooters to just um, get open mid-range looks and not have to attack the rim where Brooke Lopez is dropping because he's not really that mobile on the mid-range and on the perimeter. And I think that really helped the Nets offense be as productive as it was when losing star players. Um, So I think Giannis being at the five is huge because he is mobile. He can cover the perimeter and he can't cover, he can cover the mid-range. So I think playing Giannis at the five defensively helps him a lot because he drops a lot less than Lopez and offensively using him as a roller, using him as a cutter um, rather than being the main offensive initiator and having Chris Middleton initiate offense is huge as well. Have uh, Giannis is not that skilled in the post yet, but I think having him as a cutter can be really useful. And then his dominance alone will get him the product, the production he needs from inside. So I think that needs to be the key for Milwaukee's offense moving forward less Brooke Lopez minutes and maybe you can insert Bobby Portis back a guy who could space the floor out and play Giannis strictly at the five but I had two things to address about um, a couple of your points and um a lot of people make fun of Giannis for his free throws I mean he's not a great free throw shooter but people need to understand that the 
average uh, half court offensive rating is 99.5 points per 100 possessions. So let's say Giannis hits over 50% of his free throws. He's developing over 100 points um, every 100 possessions, one free throw made for every two attempts. So as bad as a free throw shooter as he is, is not really hurting the offense because they're getting something from his uh, production at the line. And that's what they got last night. He was eight for 14 at the line. He hit seven straight free throws. And I think Giannis not being as bad as he has been from the free throw line was really a big differentiator um, in the contest last night. And um, like you mentioned earlier, they need to play him at the five more and run more pick and roll um, with Middleton and Giannis. Yeah, I'll say this. Obviously, I we both can agree he'll never probably be uh, 80, 85% free throw shooter. But if you have free throw shooting opportunities and that's like 8, 9, or 10, making close to 50%, like you just stated, is a win. And in this game, he shot above 50%, and I think that was huge. He had that stretch in the second half where he made six straight free throws, and that honestly set the tone because – it gave him the confidence that he needed and it also gave the confidence in the team where it was like he's going to the line and he's making these. It doesn't feel emotionally deflating or draining that our best player is getting fouled. And we know he's skeptical to go to the free throw line because that was kind of the skinny in game five. Now, Chris Middleton was huge. He and Drew Holiday combined sucked from the field. They were 14 or 49, but they made key contributions from individual offensive perspectives when it mattered. Holiday had that scoring flurry in the fourth. And Chris Middleton, which is what he did in the Miami series, was their closer, the go-ahead bucket in overtime. Obviously, we have this prototypical image of a superstar player in this era having to be the guy that sets the tone and finishes the game. We know Giannis is a tone setter, but he's not your prototypical closer because he's a liability at times from a jump shooting perspective. Middleton has become that closer type player for them, and he's played very productively. And as skinny old Middleton has been in the past, he's not the co-star that Giannis needs to help take them over the top. How do you feel about his postseason performance so far? And do you feel like it can continue as the Bucs head to the Eastern Conference Finals? I definitely think it can continue. I think Middleton has always been capable of this offensive output and been capable to take over games. It just Mike Budenholzer hasn't really put him in the situations where he can. Um, in the past, we often saw Giannis try to close games by himself, even earlier this year. Um, one particular example was the Phoenix game where Giannis dropped over, um, near 50 points. But in the final possession, he brought up the ball down the court and he decided to take a jump shot. I think in those final possessions, Middleton is the guy you go to. He can initiate offense. He draws a lot of defensive attention from the perimeter, which allows other guys like Drew, like Dante DiVincenzo when he's healthy, guys like Bryn Forbes, whoever the shooters are on the court for the Milwaukee Bucks um, to be open from three. And I think that's huge. He can also create his own shot from the perimeter. So I think Middleton um, has always been capable of this offensive output. Um, and he's now getting the chance to shine. We saw last year in the bubble where Giannis was injured um, in game Four, I believe um, he got injured and Chris Middleton really took over and he had a big game without Giannis and closed down during um, closed the game down the stretch. I think that's going to be huge for Milwaukee moving forward to play of Chris Middleton. And I really think now that Mike Budenholzer has this image in his head that his guy is capable of doing this, he's going to defer to him a lot more, which is going to allow the Milwaukee Bucks to succeed more than they have before. 
Now, moving on to the next, but we will get back to the Bucks. I want to talk about the boot hoser elephant in the room. But for the Nets, we both agree if these guys were healthy, they'd probably beat the Bucks in five or six. Moving forward, Durant is getting older. Harden is getting older. Kyrie is still somewhat in his prime, but he has an injury-prone past, present, which means he could have an injury-prone future. They have their core. Blake Griffin, ideally somebody that they probably want to bring back. But how important is the health of their core going to be when it comes to them competing for a championship moving forward? Because they were never healthy, and by them not being healthy as much this year, they were never able to be on that same accord. So how important is it for all of these guys to be healthy? And do you expect Nash to take a page out of the L.A. Clippers San Antonio Spurs book where he load manages his stars at times to save him for when it matters in the postseason? So the biggest step, the biggest difference between this Brooklyn Nets super team and the Golden State Warriors super team is although the Golden State Warriors sacrificed a lot of depth to get Kevin Durant, they didn't sacrifice as much depth as the um, the Brooklyn Nets did to acquire James Harden. They had to give up their best rim protector in Jared Allen, a, a bright young scorer in Karis LeVert. And I think when you build a super team, you're sacrificing your depth and injuries can really derail your chances. And I think that's just what happened to the Brooklyn Nets. Um, staying healthy is obviously big, but like you mentioned, all three of these guys – Hardened to a lesser extent, but this year really showed that he was constantly injured throughout the year. But I think with Kyrie and KD, their health is being constantly questioned to the point where I'm not really sure what you can really do to solve that. Um, obviously, in the offseason with the draft, you um, I'm not even sure if they had their pick this year, but um, in the offseason, um, given their limited cap, you can attack some of these problems. But the biggest thing with the Brooklyn Nets is um, prioritizing health and that's hard to do, but it has to really be a priority because, um, without it, they really don't stand a chance because one star goes down. We saw that although they put up a great fight against the Brook, uh, against the Milwaukee Bucks, um, that lack of just pure dominance on the offensive end is really going to bite them. Um, so I think all three need to stay healthy if they just really want to dominate. I still think they can win a championship while just having two. And although it's going to be hard to keep all three on the court at the same time, that's obviously the goal. But I think if they want to dominate and have guaranteed results, all three have to stay healthy. Yeah, I agree as well. Um, I think next year is probably going to be their last year where confidently they're all going to be together and that's going to be their window. But I do feel that if they stay healthy, they have a chance. And I think the ideal premise for them is going to be ensuring that all of them are healthy for April, May and June. Now, their depth, I don't think is something that they can supremely better overnight because all of their capital is invested in the players that are their all-stars, Irving, Harden, and Durant. But I do feel like when you look at teams that you're going to have to be competing with, Milwaukee's not going to be going anywhere for the next two years. Philly's not going to be going anywhere for the next two years. Boston's probably going to improve as well. All of those teams have bigs, or if they don't have a prototypical big, they have size that showcases itself on the offensive and defensive rebounding end. So I think improving from a size perspective is probably ideal for them moving forward. Maybe a guy like Dwight Howard, who will be a free agent, if he's available, maybe they can go after him from a depth perspective. Adding some more consistent guard-level play off the bench as a playmaker. I think they have a ton of guys in Mike James and Landry Shaman that I think are shooters slash scorers. But another ball handler that coming off the bench that can run their second unit is influential because he's a guy that you can interchange with the starters 
and also run the second unit bench as well. And then I think also um, continuing that continuity from a coaching staff perspective, we hear the noise that Mike D'Antoni may try to pursue another coaching gig. I don't know who would want to hire that guy, but, you know, it looks like the Blazers are interested. But I think Steve Nash continuing to build on an offensive and defensive identity and continuity is important because I thought at times when they were all healthy and they played, they were so dominant that it didn't matter. But there were times where, for the most part, their offensive game plan was, I'm an ISO, you're going to ISO. And I think that when they're all together, that was going to be enough to win. But I do think it takes individual wear and tear on each of these guys' bodies. So mm-hmm. being able to form a more idealistic offensive identity to have these guys man moving and ball moving and cutting where one of them is probably controlling the ball a multitude of times and that guy's going to be hard and can conserve all of these guys' bodies long-term instead of everybody having to feel like, I'm going to go ISO against four on the wing. You're going to go ISO against two at the top of the key. That's draining, and I think it kind of compromised their health long-term. Yeah, and another thing with Steve Nash, and um, I'm not sure how you feel about this, is um, although it was a do-or-die game, I I just can't comprehend you playing Kevin Durant, who has an injury history, 53 minutes. I mean, you have to get the guy some break. I mean, um, I understand that your season's on the line, but you have a star who has suffered injuries throughout this year. He suffered a catastrophic Achilles injury um, a couple years ago. I mean, this is a guy you want to preserve long-term, and I know you had a lack of depth, but you also need to manage your timeouts better as Steve Nash and also manage your stars minutes better um, because you just can't run them to the ground because, like, it's just not a smart strategy long-term. I agree, and I think that coincides with the fact that Harden was compromised. And I think Harden wasn't as compromised with the hamstring injury Durant would have got a lot more rest, but since he was, he he knew I can't take Durant out because Harden doesn't have that offensive explosion to give me that juice when Durant's on the bench, and it came back to kill him because on that last shot opportunity, you could tell Durant had nothing left. He had nothing Mm -hmm. left, and so if he had a little bit more juice, maybe he procreates something off the dribble beyond the line for a three because the guy was so tired, he took another long two. So even if it Mm -hmm. goes in, we're going to another overtime. And if they go to another overtime, he does, he won't have anything left for, to get mm-hmm. these guys past the Bucks to the conference finals. So that depth and I think micromanaging for the betterment of the team, his stars is going to be something that they're going to really focus on in the offseason and into the regular season long term because they're going to be headed back to the 82-game season. So I kind of expect Durant, Harding, and Irvin to probably each play individually probably no more than 60 games. And I think they'll right. take a fine or whatever repercussions that the league's going to throw down on them because they know they saw, you know, the injury history that these guys have, they're going to want them as fresh as possible for the postseason out East. Right. And like you mentioned, load managing could be an effective strategy because when you load manage these stars, you're going to have two on the court at the same time. So it's not really like you're going to miss out on elite production or um, you're going to sacrifice winning. Um, in the way of resting your stars, because you're always going to have two on the court at the same time. And that was the case this year. But unlike um, this year for next year, the stars won't actually be injured. They'll just be taking rest days to um, just focus on themselves and their body. For sure. Now, back to the Bucks before we segue to the Philly Atlanta series. For Milwaukee, 
Coach Budenholzer, it's widely known that if this team doesn't come out of the Eastern Conference, his job is going to be in jeopardy. And I'm at the point now where personally, I feel like even if he wins a championship, I don't think that's going to be enough. I think Milwaukee's front office has in their mind that Budenholzer isn't the guy for this team long term to live up to their championship aspirations, especially with Giannis Antetokounmpo being their franchise player. It seems as if Rick Carlisle is on speed dial as we speak to be the incumbent here for the Bucks and Budenholzer. For the Bucks management, is it is it good enough in their eyes for Budenholzer to win a title to feel like they are justified in keeping them? Or regardless of what happens, do they need to not look at this season as something that can translate long term, but think the broader skill of it all when it comes to maximizing the years that they have of Giannis Antetokounmpo's prime and that max contract he just signed this past season. Yeah, I mean, the most unfortunate part of the Bucks winning last night was the fact that Mike Budenholzer's job security is a little more secure than it was before. Um, but if I was John Horst and that Milwaukee Bucks front office, I've seen Mike Budenholzer cost several playoff games, his lack of adjustments throughout the series. Um through multiple series is combined with how he utilizes his stars. I just don't see a way you could look at that and say, that's the guy I want coaching our team moving forward. I think I don't, I've never been a, a big Mike Budenholzer fan. I think he needs to go at the end of the season, but will he, I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure due to the fact that he has made the conference finals. Maybe if he loses these conference finals, you can fire him, but if he makes the finals and possibly wins it all, I just don't see it happening because it's just really hard to make that bold of a decision based off how much team success it takes to win the finals. That is very true. Uh, I think it's, it's very possible that, if he wins a championship, his job is set, I think, for at least two years in that Milwaukee organization. If he loses to, a, to potentially the Sixers, who I think they'll play, and we'll go into their series in a few, um, that's it. Because I feel like from a roster standpoint, Milwaukee's the most healthiest team left in the playoffs. And so if they don't get it done this year, he's got to go. Because a lot of it has to do with his philosophy as being a coach that preaches playing outside in than inside out. And I think a lot of people in this series were losing their minds when they were like, why isn't Milwaukee utilizing their obvious size advantage to, to their strength? Because they can dominate Brooklyn on the inside because they're basically telling the world we're going to play small against Milwaukee. But that hasn't been Milwaukee's skill set under Budenhoser since he's gotten there. From the time they got to the playoffs with him being their coach to now, they've been a team that plays like they're small when they're big. And that's killed them in series against teams that have a defensive game plan and a strategy to be productive. Yeah. And with the Milwaukee Bucks more so um, compared to the past years, I think um, Mike Budenholzer, um, it's kind of funny because I think he accidentally made the right decisions. I mean, Brooke Lopez getting in foul trouble often um, and then having so much success in lineups with Giannis, I think he was just experimenting more so than making the right decisions on the court. Maybe that's just me. I'm not sure. I'm not going to speak for the man, but um, based off his past history, combined with the fact that he didn't look particularly impressive and it took them so much to just barely sneak by the nets without Kyrie Irving and an injured James Harden. I don't want that man leading my team if I was um, the Milwaukee Bucks. 
I agree as well. And we're going to delve into the Atlanta Hawks, Philadelphia 76 year series. Um, this is a Hawks team that we can all agree. We didn't expect them to get to this point. It's a game seven tonight. They have a chance to beat Philadelphia and head to the conference finals. They had a chance in game six to beat Philadelphia on their home floor. They weren't able to execute it, but Trey Young's play has been phenomenal. Um, in my opinion, he's playing like Steve Nash on steroids. And what I mean by that is he's a more aggressive Steve Nash in terms of searching for his shot opportunity when it's given to him. But I think his biggest strength at this point of his career is his playmaking ability. He's probably one of the, one of the great playmaking point guards in all of the league. Just talk about his development throughout this playoff run from the Knicks series to now and how he's kind of revitalized his Atlanta Hawks franchise, which was on the rebuilding front a few years ago. And now they're back in the playoff contention again. Trey Young, man, he has been nothing short of impressive by every stretch of the imagination. His scoring and efficiency have both improved from the regular season. And when you take a look at that, that's really impressive, obviously. But then you factor in the fact that he played two top five offenses in his first playoff run back to back. And he's he, he's not only keeping up the same production offensively, he's only improving as a, as a scorer, as a playmaker. And I think that's been the biggest key, his improvement and uh, what he's been able to do from a scoring perspective, constantly just dishing out 40 point games, 30 point games. Uh, and his playmaking has been the most impressive part. He's probably one of the best passers I've ever seen. Um, constantly just in the pick and roll, he's unstoppable. When Capella runs that pick and roll with Trey Young, his lob passing, his um, ancillary passes, his bounce passes, and he has he has it all as a passer. And I think that's been key to exploiting Philly's defensive holes. And they don't have many defensive holes, but I think Trey Young's performance has been nothing short of spectacular, especially when you see the assignments he's taking in the first series. Um, he was matched up against a great defensive team. And then in this series, he's playing three all-NBA caliber defenders, two who are constantly matched up against him in Ben Simmons and Matisse Thybul. And he's had no problem adjusting to those uh, matchups. He's been nothing short of spectacular. He's only improving. And that's been the biggest key for Trey Young. And I think he's only going to go up from here. Like you said, he's more of an aggressive Steve Nash to the point where he has that elite playmaking ability, but he's also looking for a shot. Maybe he's not the most efficient at times, but his playmaking combined with how much of a deep threat he is, how much of a threat he is to score the ball really makes him one of the most dangerous offensive players in the NBA today. For sure. Because he's a dynamic player. I mean, he's quick. Um, he, he is able to maneuver through creases within the defense by utilizing the screens to his advantage. He's a problem. And I think as great as Philadelphia is defensively from the interior and on the perimeter, uh, his just ability to be elusive and his acceleration is something that can't be denied. And every time he gets into the lane, he's a problem because he's a threat with the floater. He's a threat as an initiator on lob opportunities and kickouts as well. And on the Philly front, Joel Embiid, is a dominating factor as well. His presence in the interior is something that can't be denied. He's, he's, he's dominated on that aspect in this series. Um, but the lack of better terms, he can do so much. And Seth Curry can do so much. We're going to focus on Ben Simmons. His limitations as a scorer have again magnified itself in a yet another playoff series. Um, it has a chance to not kill them against Atlanta. We'll see what happens in game seven. But long term, can he coexist within this Philly unit? as being their primary ball handler? Can he coexist within this team at all being a part of their team because he's a liability at the line? He's not giving you anything from a jump shooting perspective. 
Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I've been one of the biggest Ben Simmons. Get Philly needs to get rid of him instantaneously. And although we both agree that Ben Simmons is one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA, um, his defensive impact due to the fact that he doesn't really offer great rim protection or help defense is never going to be to the level where it makes up for his offensive deficiencies, especially as a guard defender, because guard defense is a lot less valuable than guard offense and rim protection. Uh, and as a guard offensive player, he's just not cutting it. He's simply a liability at this point. Um, his playmaking is massively overrated, in my opinion. I know that may be a hot take, but um, his he doesn't really draw much defensive attention. Off the ball, he's not really moving. And he more so just makes great passes. He's a great passer um, instead of really creating for others. I think his pass delivery is not really changing the outcome of play because you see guys like Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, Seth Curry, who's actually creating the offense around him while Ben just makes the delivery. So I think Ben Simmons' playmaking ability is somewhat overrated as well. And then you obviously look at his scoring, which is directly influenced by his playmaking um, his scoring is just not there. His perimeter, his lack of a perimeter game uh, allows him to draw less defensive attention, which makes him less effective as a playmaker. And then inside, he's just not aggressive enough. Like, if you don't have a perimeter jump shot in today's NBA, you need to make up for it in some way. You see guys like Zion Williams and Giannis, both who don't have competent jump shots, make up for it with their rim dominance. Ben Simmons does not do that. And his free throw line struggles is just otherworldly bad um like he's become a liability at the free throw line we talked about Giannis earlier in the show where his free throw output like him shooting over 50 percent from the line is a good thing because he's at least getting some offensive productivity and um in a half court set scoring over one point per um per every possession is a good thing however with Ben Simmons he's shooting well below um 50% he's shooting about 33.8% and that only leads to about 65.6 points per 100 possessions and that's well below average about 30 points below average and i think with that you're having a liability in your half court offense as your point guard and then combined with the fact that defensively he's not really making up for it especially in this series when Trey Young is still getting what he is he's still getting his from a production standpoint I don't really think Ben Simmons's impact has been there on the defensive end combined with the fact that he's been a complete negative on offense yeah that last game he played in game six it felt like he was totally disengaged and he played so bad that if Seth Curry and Tyrese Maxey didn't make up for his lack of production, they were going to lose that game. He wasn't giving you anything offensively, and he really wasn't giving you anything defensively, which was way alarming because he's at least giving you that intensity and impactfulness there. I think for Philly moving forward, last year when his stock was a little bit higher, it would have been the best move for them personally to probably pivot from Simmons and go to and maybe trade him to Portland for CJ McCollum. Now his stock is lowered even more, but I feel like, Trading him for a shooting guard that can give you some level of productivity in the backcourt as a perimeter scorer will help. And then from that point guard spot, you can just just get a guy in there that can handle the basketball and help create for others. But also, he's a threat enough to score to where if he's left open, he can make a shot like former Philadelphia 76er TJ McConnell. I don't know if he's free, but if he is, that's somebody that they can go and make that plunge to because Embiid, he's going to forever be in limbo from a health perspective. But we know when he is healthy, he is legit as an offensive and defensive talent. Simmons has been way more healthier than Embiid. 
And we know he's not legit enough offensively to keep around. And I've said this since he was in the league in, tw- in 2015, 2016. As long as Ben Simmons doesn't develop a jump shot, the Sixers are never coming out of the Eastern Conference. Right. And they're not going to come out of the Eastern Conference, even if they beat Atlanta tonight. They're going to lose to Milwaukee. They are, because Milwaukee's such a great defensive team. And, again, like you said with Simmons, he's a, he's a great defensive player, but he's not going to be enough of a defensive deterrent to prevent Giannis from averaging 30. So you're going to need somebody to equalize that on the perimeter, on the wing. And B can do that for you a little bit, but we know Giannis is going to get 30. Milton's probably going to get 20. Holly's going to give you like 18. So, and we know MB is going to get 30. So you need Simmons to give you close to 18 to 20. And he's not going to give you that because he's not a willing driver as consistently enough. He's not a consistent jump shooter. And he's not going to be able to stop Giannis because Giannis is a great talent. And so that's just where the chips really fall in the Simmons aspect. Right. And another thing is um, maybe Tyrese Maxey can take that next step and fill into that role of just being that point guard in the offense who could just bring up the ball up the court, be there as a floor spacer. I think I was really impressed by what I saw from Tyrese Maxey in game five. Obviously, it's a small sample, but even in the pre-draft process, he was my ninth ranked prospect. I was really high on him. And maybe if you could trade for a guy like CJ McCollum, keep Seth Curry in that six-man bench spark plug role, and then you bring in a guy like Tyrese Maxey who can initiate offense, um, step into that role Ben Simmons was, but actually provide floor spacing. I think that could be perfect for Philadelphia moving into next year. I know CJ's value has kind of also decreased due to the fact that he wasn't great in the playoffs this year. Uh, So I think when you have a guy like CJ who has decreased value, and then you're trading a guy like Ben Simmons, whose value is at an all-time low, I think right now is the best chance for Philly to capitalize on that situation. And I agree. And now McCollum's in the full elevate Maxie into a starter level role. Let Curry kind of fall back into that six man role. Now you have a core of McCollum, Tobias, and B. A lot more offensive explosion. You do lose a little luster defensively, but you're in an Eastern Conference where pretty much all the elite teams in the East are scoring up near 100 points. So mm-hmm. you're not going to stop anyone. You got to match them scoring wise. And so if they're able to increase their offensive productivity there, that will do a lot for them. And I want to touch base on two players before we move on to the draft, NBA draft lottery. Tobias Harris has been the ultimate X factor for the Sixers in this series because he's the guy that Atlanta can't really guard. He was really aggressive in game six. And when he's been aggressive in this series, he's been a matchup nightmare for Atlanta. How important is it for him to continue to use that aggression to make an impact in game seven? And if they win that, to utilize that aggression as a way to improve on his stock in the conference finals. Yeah, I think Tobias needs to come out firing on all cylinders. I mean, this is a do-or-die game, and I think he needs to be the guy initiating offense. I know Seth Curry has been great throughout the series. Um, Joel Embiid is obviously Joel Embiid, but I think Tobias needs to take a bigger on-ball role than Ben Simmons. I think Ben Simmons has to have his number, his his minutes limited tonight because simply he's not cutting it on the offensive end. And I think Tobias really needs to be the one initiating offense in a lineup with Seth, Tobias. Maybe you could throw in Thibault for the defensive prowess, but um, and then you could have Maxi in there as well. Just some combination of a lineup that doesn't involve Simmons being the primary initiator. I think with Tobias being the primary initiator, although he's not as great of a passer as Ben Simmons is, um, He's a much better perimeter creator, creator for himself, and he could get to his spots both on the ball. Um, I know he loves attacking the mid-range, 
um, being that primary creator, he doesn't necessarily need to rely on um, being set up for a mid-brain shot rather than just creating for himself, which he's more effective in doing. So I think Tobias needs to take a bigger on-bar role. If Simmons is constantly playing big minutes, then just be like, take over. It's my time. Um, I think Tobias really needs to come out aggressive, be that on-ball creator he was for games uh, one, two, three, um, be that guy who was just dominating in the Washington series as well. He really needs to step up tonight. And I think he will. I think he will um, because he knows what's at stake. Bogdan Bogdanovich has been Atlanta's second most important perimeter scorer. And he was playing pretty terrible in game six. And then it was realized the reason why he was playing pretty terrible in game six is because he had an injury and he set out the rest of that game. And in all likelihood, he won't play game seven. Without Bogdanovich in the lineup, how much of a loss is that for Atlanta offensively? And where can they look towards to get some type of offensive continuity to replace the productivity that probably won't be there from Bogdanovich in game seven? I'm really glad you asked that. And it's the thing with Atlanta is that they don't have Bogdanovich now. Probably they lost DeAndre Hunter. They don't have Cam Reddish. And Cam Reddish is not great offensively, but he provides great um, wing defense for them. And then you have Hunter, who is uh, a 17-point-per-game scorer who was efficient, and he also provided great perimeter defense. And then you have a guy like Bogdanovich, your second most important perimeter scorer offensively go down. It's just not a great situation for Atlanta to be in. So with all these injuries piling up, I'm really looking towards John Collins. John Collins is a guy who wants to earn a max contract this offseason. John Collins is a guy who... He has the capabilities of being a good perimeter scorer. He's great at attacking the rim. Um, he was great in game six as well. I think he did a really great job in game six, um, especially on the defensive end. He's a solid defensive piece as well for the Atlanta Hawks. But tonight, he really needs to step up in the absence of possibly Bogdanovich as well. Um, be that guy who wants to earn that max contract. It's obviously just one game. It's not going to be the be-all, end-all in terms of what he's going to get this offseason. But if he could really step up in this big fashion and then be that secondary scorer next to Trey Young, be that guy who was once thought of as an all-star caliber um, future piece, I think he could be a really big piece towards Atlanta's win tonight. I'm really looking towards John Collins taking a bigger offensive role tonight and stepping up for Atlanta. I agree. I think Collins' productivity is has to be at an uptick high. Um, he's their, really their third most important player within the lineup. So when the second best player is gone, that third best guy has to kind of slide into that second best role. And then Kevin Herter wouldn't be surprised if he starts. And he's been solid coming off the bench. So if he can continue to play productively within the starting role from a three-point shooting perspective, maybe add some type of defensive uh, intensity and ability on the other end of the floor, that's a benefit. That can also go a long way for that Atlanta Hawks team. Now, we're going to segue into the NBA draft lottery topic the draft lottery is going to happen next week next tuesday and we have a plethora of teams that are going to be in the mix for picks and the teams that we're going to really focus on in their totality are the top five and it's houston detroit orlando oklahoma city and the cleveland cavaliers let's focus on houston they have the best odds this is a new position for them because it felt like two years ago they were in the mix for a western conference finals you know championship and now they're in the lottery they have a lot of young pieces that they can look forward to. Uh, Kevin Porter Jr. was very solid in limited action after he was elevated from the G League within the NBA lineup. Uh, Christian Wood got hurt early in the year. That kind of changed the trajectory of their season. But when he played, he was solid. And then Kevin Martin Jr. 
was a very productive individual as a small ball kind of foreman. So with Houston, do you like what they're building? And idealistically, whoever gets the number one pick is probably going to go out there, Cade Cunningham. Do they have a quarter where adding a guy like a Cunningham or Evan Mobley will allow them to elevate themselves from Western Conference purgatory sooner rather than later? Definitely, definitely. And Houston does have a chance to lose their first round pick this year due to the Russell Westbrook trade. They have a 52% chance, I believe, of keeping their pick and a 47% chance of losing their pick. So we don't know what position Houston's going to be in, but assuming they stay at one, which they have the best odds for, and assuming they take Cade, I think Cade is such a good prospect to the point where he can actually lift them to a play-in caliber team. They had Kevin Porter Jr. for half the year. We saw potential of what he can do from a scoring perspective. Christian Wood got injured. Um, I think he's a good um, a good big in terms of being a solid defender and then a great floor spacer offensively who could, has, who could um, really score at a high level. I think the main thing Houston needs to uh, address this offseason is the defensive issues. Um Obviously, when you're inserting Cade Cunningham, I think their offense will actually be fine. They have three great offensive young pieces. You're adding you also have guys like Kenyon Martin Jr. in the mix as well, who showed promise. I think when you have all those pieces, you add more to the defensive side of the ball, maybe get a better defender next to Christian Wood um, on the inside and then add more wing defenders. I think Houston can really be a good team. And Cade Cunningham is a solid defender, assuming that's the pick um, they have. Or even Evan Mobley, if they get Evan Mobley, that fills the need that they have it uh, as a defensive big right next to Christian Wood. Um, and then they can add more shooting and more defensive wings later. But I think Houston, if they get a top two pick in this draft, they're in a really good position moving forward. Maybe not playoffs next year, obviously, but moving forward, they have a great young talent. Um, they'll just keep adding to that core. And then more free agents will want to sign there once that core develops and shows their true star potential. Now, with the Detroit Pistons and the Orlando Magic and the Oklahoma City Thunder, they all have young asses that had substantial playing time this past season that showed true colors of blossomness. And so let's focus on the Pistons. They were the only team that had two guys make the all first and second rookie teams. Sadiq Bey made the first team. Isaiah Stewart made the second team. Killian Hayes was out the lineup for a substantial period of time because of a messed up hip. He came back later. He had his highs and his lows. But if there's one thing Dwayne Casey can do very well, and we saw in his Toronto tenure, he can develop young talent. If Detroit happens to get a top two pick and they're able to get a Cade or Evan Mobley, how influential will he be in terms of being inserted within this culture in Detroit that's rebuilding itself and to basically entrusting their young talent towards elevating them back in the Eastern Conference contention? Detroit is an odd team to look at because they really have it all in terms of the young assets. And then they have veteran players like Jeremy Grant, Mason Plumlee. Uh, this offseason, they did go out there and sign a bunch of big men. So I think they need to clear their big men rotation. If they get an Evan Mobley, maybe they trade down. I, I know for me, Evan Mobley is a can't-miss prospect at number two. But maybe they have a different line of thinking. They see something in Jalen Green that we don't. Maybe they go ahead and take Jalen Green. And let's say they take a guy like Cade, a guy like Mobley, or Jalen Green. I think that player is um, has a lot less pressure than they initially would have had because of how well the 2020 draft prospect class 
um, the Detroit Pistons had has developed. Obviously, Killian Hayes is still a work in progress. I was high on him coming into the 2019, into the 2020 draft. Um, but the development of Sadiq Bey, the development of Isaiah Stewart uh, has really shown me that Detroit can be a healthy environment for a young player. And I think Dwayne Casey can really progress one of these top three young players in the draft. Um, whether that's Jalen Green, Kate Cunningham, or Evan Mobley, he can really help them. Um, he can really help them move forward in their development. And I'm not sure if Detroit is a playoff team even in the next two years. I mean, they still have a long ways to go in terms of really building that team up. But from an individual standpoint, I think Dwayne Casey does do a really great job in developing young talent. And I think that young player is really not is not set up for failure if he goes to Detroit. I agree as well. I saw Detroit play a little bit this year at the package, and it's clear that the talent that they did draft, they are guys that can play at the next level. I was high on Sadiq Bay. He proved to be a worthy 3 and D type guy that I think moving forward is something that they can build upon. Killian Hayes, his development is going to be important these next two years because I think his rookie season was kind of robbed of him because of injury. And then Isaiah Stewart, what he was able to kind of provide as being a like a poor man's Ben Wallace being active on the glass as a defender and as an offensive rebounder and it give you some type of scoring output is important as well and you know I see I see a lot of teams maybe kind of designing their team like Phoenix did you have the wings have a guard have guard play and then a big who isn't as ball dominant in terms of being an offensive productive player on the post but it's somebody that they can utilize in pick and roll aspects offensively so Detroit they kind of have the pieces I think this draft, if they get a top two pick, can't go wrong going either way. But you're right. They do need to kind of clear out their big clutter. And yeah, um, I do think Detroit, they need to clear out their big clutter. I think it's something that they can do moving forward. I think that'll help open up kind of their identity that they're looking for from a team aspect moving forward. Now, Orlando and Oklahoma City, they're the next two teams. Orlando. They finally pulled the plug on the perennial eight seed team, the Eastern Conference that they always were. Now they're kind of utilizing the assets that they have now on the roster to build towards a more youthful magic squad. They have to figure out who their head coach is going to be. But um, is this a team where, you know, if they're picking top four at all, um, do you feel confident that whoever they draft is somebody that can come into their environment and blossom into a talent as this magic team is trying to find their identity in a post Steve Clifford coaching era? I think the Orlando Magic have had a really sneaky good rebuild, and that starts with the trade they made at the trade deadline, getting rid of Nikola Vucevic and bringing in picks and Wendell Carter Jr. I think Wendell Carter Jr. did a really good job um, after he got traded to Orlando, both on the offensive and defensive side of the basketball Um when you take a look at that, combined with Mo Bamba's insertion into the starting lineup as well, I think both of those two bigs developments, maybe Wendell Carter Jr. can move to the four, possibly, um, if that can work out, or you could get rid of one of them. Both of them played well after the Vucevic injury. Maybe a team takes a chance on trading for one of them. Um, so you developed young guys to the point where they have movable trade value. Um, and then when you look at their guard play, RJ Hampton really impressed in his time with the Orlando Magic. And then Cole Anthony, although he had his up and downs throughout the year, I think he did a great job for his rookie year. 
Markel Fultz did suffer an ACL tear. We'll see what the situation is with him. But I think in last year, he did had a really good season. And this year, his first couple of games or his first game, I think, was good. Uh, maybe you can move on from Markel Fultz uh, more so than Cole Anthony and RJ Hampton because you know the product you're getting from Hampton and Anthony right now. While Fultz, you're really unsure. And if you're bringing a guy like Cade Cunningham into the equation, it's really just redundant having four point guards there maybe you could have Hampton and Cole Anthony be the bench pieces while Cade is inserted into the lineup and then Fultz that really doesn't leave a purpose for him to be in Orlando so maybe you could flip him um, for some pieces moving forward but I think Orlando's in a really good spot they have a ton of young talent um, who's shown promise in the NBA um, and I think moving forward in their rebuild they have a lot of draft capital as well I think they're in a good position to really improve their young core and be one of the better teams in the Eastern conference moving forward. I agree. They are a young sneaky team. Uh, they seem like they are invested and they like what Marco folks and Jonathan Isaac, both guys coming off of ACL tears, but even when they came off of ACL, even when they had those tears, they gave them extensions. So they want them to be a part of their rebuild moving forward. I think it's important to find out who their coach will be so they can develop an identity, but they have a lot of assets and a lot of it's from John Hammond, the former Bucks. You know, General Manager, he's running that Orlando magic, magic situation. And like in Detroit, they're building something that right now doesn't seem feasible or doesn't seem coherent. But I think the the blueprints are there that are positive. Where moving forward, they can be a team that can develop into something in the Eastern Conference. And with Oklahoma City, it's widely known. They're a team with all the draft picks that anyone can think of. And you just brought up that if Houston doesn't get in the top two, that pick can go to Oklahoma City. They have a chance to get a number one pick as well. There's a chance they could get two game-changing prospects in the top five in this draft. And so for the Thunder, they have a history of drafting very well. The problem is when they've drafted very well, they never were able to get a championship. Is this Presti's biggest opportunity to kind of pick up the pieces yet again and make Oklahoma City into a Western Conference powerhouse in the next three to four years? Yeah, so as a Thunder fan, it's really hard to but it's really hard to put these picks into perspective. Obviously, accumulating a lot of picks is a good thing, but it also has to do with how you draft. How you draft is so important. Um, and I really do trust Sam Presti's drafting ability. He's had a great track history when it comes to drafting young talent. The problem with Sam Presti in the past has been surrounding that young talent with competent pieces um, in the starting lineup. We saw in the first tenure with James Harden, he obviously had to trade James Harden. But then with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, they had absolutely putrid spacing surrounding them. No floor spacers whatsoever, no shooters at all. And I think that really hurt them. Um, and then this year, we saw with Shea Gildas-Alexander, he had great production until he got hurt. But then he also did not have great shooters around him as well. He had arguably, I think he had the worst spacing situation in the NBA. And then without him, uh, in the stretch that he got injured, the Thunder had one of the worst offenses in NBA history. So Sam Presti does have a lot of work to do in terms of um, drafting. I think drafting, he's got that 
in the undercover. I think he drafts really well. The problem with him in the past has been surrounding his young talent with the proper pieces, the proper role players. And I think that has to be a big piece. He not only could get two top five picks, he also has 10% of this draft. The Thunder are drafting six times, maybe seven. So I think you capitalize on those late round picks as well. Maybe you make trades in the low in the second round to move up for a great young piece who could be a complimentary role player for the guy you're drafting in the lottery combined with Shea. So I think Sam Presti has to really hit the nail on the coffin when you're talking about um, really drafting those role players. Well, I think the star players, he does draft well, but surrounding them also signing free agents because the Thunder do have the most cap space in the league. I think he really needs to do a good job in terms of surrounding these young players with the proper supporting cast that they require. That's a factual statement. I never really thought of it like that. Um, he has been successful drafting foundational star caliber pieces, but it's the consulary parts around him that provide spacing that has prohibited Oklahoma City from getting out of the West consistently to compete in the NBA Finals. Um, the past draft that they just had, past two drafts, I might add, they hit home on Ludor. And I think they are starting to find something with Pokashevsky. He was in and out of the G League, but I think eventually once he caught his bearings within the game, he was a productive talent as well um when they traded away Moses Brown and Al Horford to the Boston Celtics I think they kind of showed their hand in terms of acknowledging to their fan base and the front office themselves like look if we get a top caliber pick we're probably going to go all in on Evan Mobley because they feel like he could be their foundational piece as a front court center guy because they are probably comfortable with their backcourt Shea is the guy and Lou Dortz, I think, showcased an ability to develop a three-point shot so he can be a solid two-way player. So their backcourt is kind of set. And now I think filling out their front court is probably something they're going to look forward to. And if they do get a guy like a Cade or they do get a, get a guy in Evan Mobley, I expect them to probably be centerpieces within their front court as they feel comfortable with their future backcourt being established with SGA and Lou Dortz. Yeah, the Thunder are guaranteed three first-round picks, and they may have a chance of getting four first-round picks. And I think Sam Presti is of the mindset right now that although they can win the lottery, they can get a Cade Cunningham. That's most likely not going to happen. I think he's of the mindset that you get all of these picks, and you're probably going to be selecting four through seven you trade all those picks and get Evan Mobley, put all the chips on the table to get a guy like Evan Mobley because Kate at this point seems untouchable. I would have Mobley as untouchable if I was a GM, but maybe other GMs don't feel the same way. Sam Presti makes that trade, trades all the first round picks and gets that foundational piece. And then in the second round, maybe he can make calls and trade those second round picks for another first round pick and then get another complimentary piece who can really help um, Shea and Mobley um, in the starting rotation. Last but not least, the Cleveland Cavaliers, it feels like since LeBron has left, they're always in a lottery and they're back in it again. And for lack of better terms, ever since they've been in the lottery, it just doesn't feel like they're getting any better. Um, this past year, last time they were in the lottery, they got Isaac Okoro, who is a quality defender, but he's a work in progress as an offensive talent. He's not the most consistent shooter. And right now, there's rumblings that Colin Sexton is probably on the way out. So past few drafts, they've drafted Sexton, they've drafted Garland, they've drafted Okoro, and all of these guys, Kevin Porter Jr., who they traded, all of these guys have not really made Cleveland into anything legitimate out East. It just doesn't feel like they have an identity. Is this draft process for them 
important in terms of establishing some wave of a future because right now it just feels like they're a farm system where all these young guys are just on a squad, not developing, but they will be impactful trade assets that when they move to another team, they can finally reach their fullest ceiling like KBJ did with Houston. Yeah, in terms of the Cleveland Cavaliers, it's somewhat like they draft good young talent, but the talent is not good enough. I, I like Darius Garland a lot. I think he's shown promises of being a good scorer in the NBA, and he's, his playmaking is off the charts. But then you talk about a guy like Colin Sexton. Is he – like, I understand, like, some people don't, but I really do understand why the Cavs don't want to pay him. Like – Outside of being a good scorer who's efficient, he's not that great of a playmaker. And then defensively, he's a complete liability. And building around two small defensive liability guards is really tough in the modern NBA. And I think when you're choosing between Garland and Sexton, I think you have to choose Garland due to the fact that he's not only shown great scoring promise, but he's also shown great playmaking promise as well. So I think they have to pick Garland in that scenario. But in this situation, we're assuming that they're going to pick high or top five. Um, a guy I really like for them is um, a guy like maybe Kai Jones. There's a lot of options that uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers have. They can go after a guy like Kai Jones, fill that need at center. Although they do have Jared Allen, you could slide Jones to the four. Maybe Franz Wagner um, as well. You could play him at the four. Um, or they can go guard. They could go for a guy like Jalen Suggs if that's an opportunity presented to them. A guy like Josh Giddy, who's rising up a lot of draft boards as well from Australia, has shown great playmaking potential. Um, I think the Cavs have a lot of options because I think you attested to it as well. Their talent that they drafted, they're not as elite as you would want them to be. They're not these franchise changing pieces. So I think although that they have those positions filled right now, if there is a player on the draft board and the Cavs look at that player as being significantly better than one of their young pieces, I draft that young player and then move on from that young piece. Just like how the Dallas Mavericks did a couple of years ago when they drafted Luka Doncic and moved on from Dennis Smith Jr. I think if there's a player on the draft board that they believe is better than one of the players they have, they have to pick him regardless of position. Yeah, I think they're in the same situation that Dallas was in before they got Luka. Oh, I think they're the team out of everybody that's in the lottery that probably really needs a top two pick because they need a franchise caliber player that can right. change their fortune and help paint an identity for their future moving forward. Because like you just stated, they've got a lot of young guys that I feel like on other teams could be prominent glue pieces, but on the Cleveland Cavaliers with no identity, they're kind of being washed away to see. And, you know, Colin Sexton has done wonders, in my opinion, in terms of improving as a talent. Because coming into the league, he wasn't a consistent shooter. And now he is, but he is ball dominant. He's not the greatest defender. And it's got to the point where his teammates and him have bristled about his play style. And so it's time for him to move on. You have a guy in Garland who I think fits their style of play a lot better. He's not as selfish and he's a way more productive playmaker. I think that'll open it up for their offense moving forward. If they got a Cade or if they got an Evan Mobley, it could help position themselves into being more of a, concrete competitor in the east moving forward because if they don't get those guys and they don't even get a Jalen green or a Suggs, and now they're outside the top four and you're in the fifth to seven range in a draft that i do feel is deep has a chance to be one of those drafts we look back on as wow the most game changing in the nba they're going to be stuck in the same position they've been in the last three to four years I think the Cavs just have to draft the best player available. That's ha that has to be the move for them. Uh, maybe you could take the risk on Jonathan Kaminga. He had, uh, he's a project, I believe. He 
he has top five potential. A lot of people are not as high as um as high as as high on him as um, most draft pundits are. I know I'm not one of them, um, but maybe they could take the risk, take best player available, see what Jonathan Kaminga could provide. But the Cavs, ha- uh, they have a lot of options um, because they're not particularly elite anywhere on the court. So we're going to pivot to the NFL um, before we wind out this podcast. You know, the Aaron Rodgers situation has been a unique one, to say the least, for all NFL fans. Um when he stated really right around the time they got eliminated that the franchise wasn't kind of coinciding with his vision and that he wanted out. It's been pretty clear that he wants to get out of green Bay and probably move on at this point in his career. He feels like they haven't developed the team around him to maximize his career standings. They've gotten his replacement that he acknowledges is somebody that um, is pretty prominent in green Bay's future and Green Bay's kind of embraced the fact, at least upper management, that he isn't the guy that they see long term. And so for the Packers and for Rodgers, what's the best case scenario for both parties moving forward? Do they pivot or do they do what I think makes the most sense for Green Bay, which is you basically tell Rodgers, look, we control your rights. We're not trading you. So either how about this? You play one more year and then we'll trade you after the season or you just retire or is this one of those things where you just let Rogers continue to force the issue and then you just give them up before or before the regular season starts perfectly, maybe after the preseason. Yeah. I think the Packers actually have more leverage in the situation than Aaron Rodgers does. And from Rogers perspective, obviously you would want to get traded because the Packers franchise um, let's face it, they haven't done a good job in servicing Aaron Rodgers' needs. I mean, they went out and drafted Jordan Love when they could have gotten a receiver weapon like T. Higgins, who was on the board, um, or they could have traded even further up for a guy like Justin Jefferson. I mean, they had a lot of options to go get a receiver, which they were really lacking, but they didn't. They decided to draft Aaron Rodgers' his successor, and we don't even know if Love's going to play this year either. I mean, if Aaron Rodgers continues to play for the Packers, we don't know if Love's going to play for two years of his NFL career. And then by the time, let's say Aaron Rodgers keeps playing, by the time Jordan Love comes, in, comes into the picture, his rookie contract's going to be up, and you don't know what to do with him. You don't, Are you going to pay him the money that is the next level money? You don't know what you're going to do with Jordan Love. And so I think the Packers are in a really tough situation, although they do have leverage on Aaron Rodgers. Um, they have a lot of decisions to make um, in terms of their quarterback situation. I think they really did screw it up for themselves. Um, but in terms of what they can do from here, I think that you need to try your best into convincing Aaron Rodgers that, uh, that you know, we could trade you in the offseason uh, or we could trade you right now if the market is big enough, which I expect it to be big enough. Um, but I'm not really sure you could really trade a piece like Aaron Rodgers and require – you're not going to get the compensation that you would want from a piece like Aaron Rodgers. So I think the Packers have leverage over Rodgers, but at the same time, they're in a sticky situation in terms of their quarterback room and what they can get for a, a potential Aaron Rodgers trade. Honestly, I feel like it comes down to how much do they feel Jordan Love is ready. And right now in this training camp that they're having having right now, where the times of COVID-19 have kind of de-escalated to where you can have these camps kind of co- similar to the ones that you had in the past. We're hearing reports about how he's been up and down, kind of like how his comp was Mahomes before he got his job. So I think 
I think perfect case scenario for Green Bay. I think they talk to Rodgers on the side once he kind of comes back from his offseason extravaganza, and you tell him, look, um, we get it. You're upset. We get it. We're upset. We get it. That long term, we're both going to go separate ways. Sell him on finishing one more year with the team and then convince him that when it's all done this season, we'll get you to where you want to go. And we'll be able to kind of, you know, compartmentalize what we want on the back end. Because I feel like Rodgers, especially if he performs very well with probably not an MVP season, but an all-pro year, you're going to get solid equity from him. And so if you sell him on one last hurrah and make him feel comfortable with that, I think you're able to keep Love on the bench to where he's not on the bench too long. He'll have two more years or three more years of his rookie contract left. And you're able to get the most equity possible from Rodgers because if he has another year of solid play, it's going to elevate his hot, his um, trade capital even more. You'll be able to get solid compensation because the way Green Bay's roster is set up, um, Devontae Adams is somebody that they're going to have to potentially bring back. But the team that they've created in totality is good enough, in my opinion, to win their division. So you can be able to compete for a Super Bowl one more time and then start a rebuild that isn't as daunting as it is for like a team like the Jets or whatnot, because you have a solid core roster of young guys established now. You just need to be able to fill out certain role players around Jordan Love to make him feel comfortable to be successful successful in his rookie contract. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things the Packers can do at this point. I mean, obviously, Devontae Adams is a piece you want to keep around. Devontae Adams has expressed that he wants Rodgers back. He's fully behind Aaron Rodgers' decisions. So um, what the Packers can do at this point is if I were them, I would honestly – explore the trade market for Jordan Love and there might not be as big of a trade market for Jordan Love as one would expect there to be if you can get for him and then you bring Aaron Rodgers back and then add more receiving talent and then run it back because I, I just can't see a, re- a reality where you're giving up on a guy who's that dominant who's that talented and still has a lot left I agree um, a little bit to what you're saying. I, I'm kind of leaning the other way with Love. Like, I just feel like from a capital perspective, Love is cheaper. And if you honestly feel like Love is ready, and I think inevitably you're going to let Love start in some capacity, you pull the plug on Rodgers after the season, and then you kind of move forward from there. I think both parties kind of get what they want. I think Green Bay is kind of able to advance into a new era of football without Rodgers. And Rodgers is able to kind of continue his career on his own terms without having to worry about is the franchise going to capitalize my demands because if they don't look at me as their long-term solution, then they won't. And so they're just really setting things up to push me out the door. So that's something that he's going to have to kind of understand. And I think the understanding will be him being somewhere else. And I think that would be best for both parties. And with that, it's the end of episode 21. But before I go, just want to give Pranav a huge shout out being able to be on this podcast segment. He was a solid guest. Pranav, just talk about uh, your time on here. Uh, talk about your product before you go and uh, the things you took away from this podcast segment so far. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure to join. Um, I had a great time discussing the landscape of the NBA, the playoffs, and then obviously addressing the Aaron Rodgers situation. Um 
you can make sure to follow me on Instagram at Sports World Debates. It's the same user for TikTok at Sports World Debates. And then also make sure to go follow me on Twitter at Pranav Sri Raman. On all three platforms, I'm constantly um, posting new content regarding sports, life, um, whatever you want to talk about. Make sure to reach out to me. I'm all I'm always open to discuss sports in the DMs as well. So um, that that's where you could reach me. I constantly write articles, make videos as well. So make sure to be on the lookout. Um, subscribe to the Intel podcast as well. He does a really good job with his work. Um, thank you for having me on, though. This was a pleasure. I appreciate that. You know, check out his tags and check out my tag at Intel Podcast on Instagram. Um, continue to upload podcast episodes and other content on there as well. And without further ado, I'll be back next week with a potentially a new guest. Hope you guys enjoyed this segment and enjoy future ones down the line. Peace.